0: Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg er chefredaktør på Information, og jeg vil gerne byde velkommen til endnu en podcast i vores serie Europæiske Ideer. Det er en række bøger og en række samtaler, som vi har lavet her på Information, for at indføre jer i de store linjer i Europa og binde dem op på den politiske virkelighed. I denne uge skal vi møde den franske sociolog Bruno Latour, som er kendt for mange forskellige ting, Men særligt, at han i de senere år blev kendt som en klimatænker. Ved øh, COP15, det store klimatopmøde i København, der tog han alle sine studerende, og sammen lavede de en matrix for, hvordan forhandlingerne skulle gå op, og man skulle nå til en aftale, som skulle redde jorden på lang sigt. Han gennemspillede, Alle variabler sammen med sin studie, når de legede, at de var verdenssamfundet. Der er dem, der mener, at det han legede i København faktisk var det, som skabte Paris-aftalen i 2015. Det vil jeg stå uforklaret, men det der helt er sikkert, det er hans bog, ned på Jorden, som vi har udgivet her på Informationsforlag, er en af de vigtigste bøger, som er skrevet om klima, økonomi og filosofi i de seneste år. I forbindelse med, at Double Information udgav, Denne vidunderlige bog, der var Bruno Latour på besøg i det kongelige bibliotek. Her udfoldede han tankerne i sin bog. Han fortalte om Europas fremtid og forklarede, hvordan hele verden kan realisere målene fra Paris-aftalen. Han bliver interviewet af den danske forsker Nikolaj Schulz, som er Ph.D. i sociologi og som også er hans elev. Så det vi får i det følgende, det er faktisk en samtale mellem troldmanden og hans lærling, eller som det hed i den græske antik, mellem elskeren og hans elskede, mellem eleven og mesteren, Bruno Latour og Nikolaj Schulz. Vi kommer ind i samtalen, hvor de to har talt om Bruno Latours forrige bog, Facing Gaia. Gaia-hypotesen er oprindeligt fremsat af den britiske tænker, James Lovelock. Og dem, der har læst information i 50 år, det er jo heldigvis de fleste, de kan huske, hvor begejstrede vi var for den tanke, den gang James Lovelock fremsatte den for, omkring 15 år siden. Det handler kort og godt om, at naturen er et slags kosmisk hele, som han kalder for geja. Og vi har lang tid troet, at hvis det var sådan, at man forstyrrede det hele et sted, så ville systemet korrigere og ligesom være mere så hvis der blev for varmt på jorden, så vil det skabe nogle skyer, og de skyer ville stille sig imellem solen og jorden, så det ikke ville blive så frygtelig varmt ned på jorden. Pointen er altså, at naturen som et hele vil beskytte mennesket mod menneskets udskejelser. Men det, som James Lovelock viste, det er, at vi har forrykket balancen på en måde, så naturen ikke arbejder med os længere, men faktisk arbejder imod os. Så den der helhed af handling, som naturen er, som vi engang troede beskyttede os, er nu noget, som faktisk truer os. Og hvis man forestiller sig, at det er vores horisont for det 21. århundrede, så bliver menneskets helt afgørende opgave, hvordan kan vi handle, så naturen handler igen med os, i stedet for at handle imod os. Og det er dette drama, som trollmanden og hans lærling, Bruno Latour og Nikolaj Schultz berører i den samtale, der følger nu. It's working. So, Bruno,
1: what are we doing here? Uh, We're talking about space,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and we are supposed to ignore the audience. And that's very easy. Six hundred people in here, or something like that. So we, we, are not, we are supposed to have a conversation? Yeah. And the public is not supposed to react? No, they don't exist tonight.
2: OK. OK,
1: yeah. Um, and they're not allowed to laugh?
2: No, they can't laugh, okay. because
1: we're very serious
2: researchers, and uh, that's how it should be kept. OK. Well, well, we'll
1: try. Yeah.
2: Well, another thing that you are trying to do these days is understanding this new Earth which we are encountering, which is all of a sudden reacting to the way that we move it, or reacting to our actions, sorry. and In your second last book, uh, or second last book that you published, Facing Gaia, you try to situate historically this encounter with this new Earth with reflecting upon two different scientific discoveries, one of them from the 17th century, Galileo, raises his telescope to the moon and concludes that the Earth is similar to all the other planets. Right? It's a falling body among other falling bodies. 350 years later, you argue that another scientist not as famous, they call him a Maverick even, James Lovelock, on the other hand, concludes that the Earth, our planet, is dissimilar to all the other planets. Can you try to reflect a little bit upon what is the symmetries and the asymmetries between these two discoveries and what it tells us about where we stand right now, historically?
1: Well, I think they they are both uh, working and trying to cope with uh, moving Earth. But as uh, the French philosopher uh, Michel Serres said once, uh, what Galileo means by moving Earth, it means the Earth is turning around uh, the Sun and the whole expanded cosmos is is there and it disturbs everybody uh, inside this Earth which is now moving around the Sun. But when Lovelock, uh, who is not as well known as Galileo, but I think they are actually uh, parallel, talk about the moving Earth, it, it means something else. It means that the Earth is actually emu, we say in French, that is, uh, being moved and uh, reacting to our action in a way which was not understandable uh, before the late, uh, let's say, um, 60s approximately, when the discovery of Gaia was made. So what interests me is that both are uh, dealing with an extraordinarily strong um, change in the cosmology. And uh, both have to cope with the consequences of this move. And of course, we know very well uh, Galileo's consequences because of a massive history of science which has been made, because of the famous quarrel between the church and physics, etc., etc. And also because there is this extraordinary uh, play by Bertolt Brecht, called The Life of Galileo, which is uh, all about the consequences it has on the way people feel when they are told, before they believed they were under the orders of the cosmos, and suddenly they are told that the earth turned around and they don't know where they are, and they are lost. So we know all these things for uh, the case of, of Galileo, even though, as everybody knows, in terms of the consequences on the daily life, it's zero because no one makes, I mean everybody, still we are here, we look at the sun exactly as if it was uh, turning around us. So we have a very famous discovery which has a major impact <laughs> on physics and astronomy, which has perturbated the whole establishment of a church, which is actually connected to this drawing there. No, actually there is another thing there, but I mean the drawing behind me. Uh, and which is well known by anybody. And I'm contrasting it with this other moving Earth by Lovelock, who is not very well known, who is actually disputed, but whose discovery together with a very more famous scientist called Lynn Margulis made a discovery about the Earth being moved, which is uh, immensely more important. And which has consequences also on the social order. So we have two big uh, discoveries, so to speak, at 300 years of distance of the same magnitude, one of them which is the beginning really of the uh, modern cosmology, so to speak, and the other one which is the end of the modern cosmology, because we now have to live with a moving earth and we don't know how to do it. And we are, this is what interests me, I, I'm writing a play uh, and a second play, I did a play before, but uh, a second play on that question, because it means that I'm trying to put the people who watch the play in the shoes of people who would have been in, the 16, in 1610, uh, worrying about this guy Galileo, a strange scientist what he's doing with moving the earth, we don't like that, etc. I'm trying to put the audience of the play in the same shoes. At night now we hear about Lovelock and Margulis, and they are worried about the Earth being uh, moving. Uh, they, they don't understand how human can be strong enough to make the Earth react to the action and so on and so forth. So it, it's a very powerful way to enter into the question which has interested me for 40, 40 years, of the link between science and society, that is the, the, the link between the cosmology and, and the social order. So I, I think there is a room for the parallel.
2: And what are the political consequences hereof? One of the ways that you conceptualize this spatial shift is through uh, introducing a notion that you call our new climatic regime. What is the new climatic regime? Is it an alternative to modernity? Well,
1: of course, uh, Lovelock and Margulis are not interested for their politics. Actually, Lovelock's politics is is really horrible. (laughs) He wants to get rid of most of the people. He think that the carrying capacity of the earth is f- 300 millions <coughs> and he says nothing about the billions which have to be shaked out by Gaia so to speak. So I'm not interested in the politics of, uh, of Lovelock at all but I'm interested in the consequence like Galileo actually was also very bad uh, in, in in politics and he ran into a lot of trouble uh, especially with the church so we should not mix the discovery with the Influence, but in both cases, there is a consequence, and Lovelock's consequence is more important: is that we are lost in space. And when I say we, it means basically the whole political uh, order. And uh, this is what I I have uh, tried to map very grossly in the book, which is now published in in. in in Danish, which has been published a few, one year ago, I think. A year ago. Which is to say, okay, uh, what do we have in common right now? It's not that we are moving uh, forward through progress, as we thought during until the late, let's say, 80s. It's that we are lost in space, because we, we have no longer any exact argument and idea of where is the soil on which we reside. And that shows very clearly in a political disputes right now, as you know, I'm sure, um, first in the what is called populist movement, but the word populism hides our deep ignorance of, of what is actually there. But it's a, it's a reaction or a claim or, I don't know how to describe it, an effect asking, tell me where we are. Are we bordered by the, the, the nation state, our nation state <coughs> in Denmark, or of course more vividly in America with Trump in the Brexit, In France, in Germany, everybody is clamoring for that. In Italy, in Hungary, everybody is talking about... uh, Bring back the question of border, bring back the question of which people is actually inside this border. So that's a direct influence of a climatic question. Even if people don't actually uh, listen to climatic news, what I mean by climatic regime is that even if you deny that there is any chance all of a political organization is actually ordered by this question of land, where do we land? In which space do we land? And on the other side there is the people who say, no, no, we should go on. We have uh, to maintain the great modernist tradition and go forward. Globalization, if you want, but of course now the both position looks slightly, uh, (coughs) one seems very dangerous and the other one is is, seems obsolete. But both of them are also very abstract because the land to which the populist movement wanted to go, the Italy of Salvini, the Brexit of Johnson, the France of of Front National and the America of Trump are not real countries. They are imaginary versions of what would have been the land and the country many years ago. So what is fascinating and the globe the one who, want, who say, well, things are going to go back to order. Let's wait for Trump to lose the election in 2020 and then things will be all right again. Hopefully there will be a new uh, progressive movement, etc, etc. They live in a dream, which is just as completely uh, bizarre because uh, they actually imagine, which is even more uh, bizarre, that uh, the Earth would infinitely uh, accept our development. So the local is too small and the global is too big, and in your book... well, they are both too abstract. They are too unreal, so to speak. They have no materiality. None of them have any ecological or economical for that sake. They they sort of believe they have an economical dimension, but for me, the the, the great experiment is that of a Brexit. Mm. Because when the Brexit started three years ago, they they had exactly that, which is an imaginary space, the England uh, great again, or some equivalent, global England, global Britain, it was called. And it was entirely based on an idea of identity. Let's get our identity and sovereignty back, okay? And uh, three years later, it's a complete mess, but in the three years, we had an extraordinary experiment where the English people discovered bit by bit that they were actually depending on many things which the Europe was giving them as well. The labor uh, discovered that suddenly the protection of workers was much better insured by the EU than by Johnson, that's for sure. So that's the general experiment that everybody now has. Everybody in Hungary, in Italy, in uh, America, of course, suddenly is seeing okay, we, we talk about identity and we talk about nation state and protection and wall. But when we do this experiment, we realize there's no soil behind. No, we don't depend on this identity only, we depend on other things. I don't know if you remember, it's just an anecdote, but it's typical of what I'm trying to say. Very late in the game, a year ago, uh, in the Brexit negotiations, the guy, Minister, was in charge of the negotiation with, with uh, Brussels and Barnier, suddenly realized that there were trucks crossing the channel. <laughs> And he said it in the Common. he said, I've recently discovered that we actually depend on Douvres and uh, for uh, trucks to come back. And it's very important for the British economy. <laughs> and he, he confessed that he had not thought about it. Mm. So it means that our ignorance about what is really making our uh, country thrive is immense. That's what it means that people are lost. So we we have two completely different definitions of losing time, losing space. One is the local, if we want, or neo-local, and the other one is the neo-global. This is very rough Mm. compared to the subtlety of political science. I'm not a political scientist. I'm just trying to understand what this uh, moving earth is doing to political uh, organizations. That's what I call uh, the climatic regime. And of course, there is a third attractor, which I portray or point at in the book, which is what I call the terrestrial. I don't know it's how it's translated in, a, in, in, in Danish, probably something like the earth. The jordiske. Okay. The earthly, terrestrial.
2: Which also means the globe? No, it doesn't mean the globe. Okay. Uh, but this terrestrial... Well, what does it mean?
1: The <laughs> well, it, means the, it, it means the Earth. But the Earth, because there are many ways of being the Earth. The moving Earth, the Earth as yeah, a globe. Yeah, but the globe. Ah.
2: But, yeah, it could be actually. Sorry? You're not supposed Sorry. to be there, right? <laughs> no, but what, what he's saying is very interesting but you could be, because <laughs> you're cheating. I I know the Laturian definition of the surface of the Earth, but I'm not sure that the word, yordisk, refers to only a surface. Anyways, it doesn't mean the globe necessarily, let's just take it there. But if you describe this terrestrial attractor, how would you, because that's that's the most interesting part of the book, but also the most... (sighs) Obviously, it's not more abstract than the local and the global, you say, but that's really what you want to point to, right? Like, how can we find a third... Way, not in the classical stupid way of uh,
1: doing a third way. In but between. it's not a third way inside the two, because exactly. this solution, which is quite interesting, you ask the question this way because the parties which were before doing the sort of third way, that is basically socialist and social democrat and Christian democrat or something like that, have, in France and in, in in England at least have been wiped out, mm-hmm. and also in Germany very likely. And that clarifies the thing. What it means to be the third. It's not the third in the in the middle of a two uh, big, uh, local and global. It means that it's another it's another interest for an old question, very old question, which has always been there in political theory, in political anthropology, which is which soil do you depend on? And soil means land. It means Heimat. It means uh, material resources, it means a lot of, of things. And with whom? So, the two basic anthropological questions, which is which people in which land, are again thrown into the discussion mm-hmm. by the ultra right, as well as by the liberal and by now the green. The green made a little move, at, I don't know about here, but in, in, in the rest of, of Europe at the last election. It was very interesting that it was a turn to the green. French green did a terrible uh, campaign and yet they they won 13%. So it's quite interesting that even the French are able to have a green party which is not just marginal. So what I was saying three years ago, which is that the whole alignment of political attitude and effect is organized by this climate, which people say you exaggerate, uh, etc. Uh, now it's completely obvious, which is that people are organizing their whole uh, attitude, even if they deny and if they say. It's very interesting that the, the, the ultra right in Germany and the ultra right in Spain decided suddenly to be climate skeptics. We didn't think of it before. We suddenly decided to be climate which would give you exactly the sort of energy which is going on in the alignment around this question of of climate, it doesn't mean people are interested in the climate. It doesn't mean people know anything about the fact of the climate. It means that Mm. the question of a moving earth and the soil on which you depend on is now what organized politics, just in the same way that the social question was organizing all of the socialist and liberal movement from the beginning of the 19th century onward. Mm. And it's actually the same question, but it's rephrased slightly uh, differently. And that's what is, I think, so uh, interesting in the uh, political moment.
2: And why is it so difficult then for for people to understand that in order to have
1: politics you need to have a land and you need to have a people? So what's happening now is that this old question of subsistence is now framed politically differently than it was when we were modern, because in fact, there is, a, if you want, uh, how should I say, a disconnect between uh, the land inside which we have our rights, for instance, the magnificently providential uh, Danish state, mm-hmm. which give us uh, fellowship for PhDs, uh, very generous, I learned, uh, uh, rights, uh, all sort of... Uh, protection, which is the way, th- which we could say is the world we live in. And then there's another world, which is the one we live from. Uh, and of course, we sort of know they are connected, but <coughs> on the hand, because of a history of the West and the way, basically because of a colonization first, and then because of a Discovery of coal, and then there's a whole economic history of that, and then the discovery of oil. Basically, these two uh, uh, regimes or these two types of words have, 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 have divorced, so to speak. So, if people are lost, if they have lost space, is that it's very difficult now, if you ask someone from here what allows you to subsist, to describe the word out of which they get their prosperity. And this is what this guy Charbonnier has been uh, doing in his thesis habilitation. It's very interesting, which is to explain why is it that the distance become bigger and bigger every time there was uh, a new political movement uh, since basically the discovery of America. So you get your subsistence for one. And in one chapter, he has a very interesting um, sort of uh, simile to understand what I'm saying. It turns out that in 1810, I think, uh, Fischer, the great German philosopher, wrote a book about uh, answering the English uh, liberalism. And he said, you, you, the English, are completely hypocritical, which is very true, actually, of course, <laughs> uh, because you, you pretend to invent a global world mm-hmm. and to be all tolerant and civilized and so on, but because you, you basically exploit the whole, the whole planet. If Germany wants to do that, it has to close its border. It has to completely forbid commerce. It has to juxtapose the, 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 the land on which it, it, it thrives and the, the land which gives it rights to its citizens. I don't believe that Fish imagined that it was possible even in the beginning of the 19th century, but it gave a very good uh, Uh, utopia, so to speak, of a correspondence between the two, at the time when coal was not even there, and of course oil was not there, and the great acceleration had not started. But he was imagining that if, if, if you don't want to be hypocritical, you have to reconcile the sense of justice inside the country, the legal country, so to speak, with the real country out of which we live. Okay, so I think it's a very good way to define the situation because now, today, what happened, what we call ecological crisis, is not about ecology, it's not about nature, it's not about green stuff. It's about the fact that the, the, because this <laughs> earth is now moving and agitated, suddenly everybody says, What do we live from? What do we subsist on? So the, the, the general question of subsistence, the general question of, of how do we actually uh, uh, survive becomes uh, politically clear. That's what I mean by the the, climate, the, 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 the climatic regime. And, and everybody is terrified by this weak connection because, of course, it can mean this, which is a crash. And all the people who are... Fa- fa- uh, Fascinated by the question of collapse, uh, the whole argument about apocalypse, Hollywoodian apocalypse and so on is because, it, but it's true, it's the same mm. the same feeling that we are going to crash. As the title of a book in France is How to Land, Not to Crash. But mm. sometimes, if you, if you, you can actually, it can be fairly, uh, fairly harsh. So, climatic regime is not about green stuff. It's not even clearly about the climate in the sense of uh, CO2 emission, even though, of course, it's part of it. It is, uh, look at what happened from the extreme right, to the extreme left, to the extreme center, to the green. Everybody is trying to figure out which is the land on which we are going to land. I mean, which is the soil, and of course, completely different views. But we, the task of political scientists, activists, artists, philosophers, and so on uh, is, I think, to uh, articulate this, this, this question, which is not the old question uh, as it was before. Uh, it's connected to socialism, but it's not a aligned in the same way. Socialism was aligned with progress, emancipation, and of course, production. And here it's something different. It's okay, well, emancipation, progress, and production raise another question, it's not only production, it's not only reproduction, it's the whole question of what it is to live. I mean a, a nice example is the extraordinary uh, charismatic, uh, violent and powerful ways in which the little girl Greta Hunberg speaks. I think she does a fairly good job at bringing this question of climatic regime uh, in terms of affect, not in terms of solution, of course it's not her job, but uh, this is what this is what is new, and again, this is, to uh, go back to your first question, this is what relates uh, fairly well to the, uh, the Galileo-Lovelock moment, because pe- we are now exactly like that. We, 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 we try to understand what happens to the cosmological view we had before, and the link between the cosmos and the social order is being threatened, and that's why the whole United States government is climato-sceptic for good reason.
2: But that's difficult when you see a picture of Elon Musk's space Tesla floating around in space, right? Because that's where modernism cracks over into, because that's not for all, that's for the few, that's for the rich. And then he tried to colonize Mars. It's not only him, it's also Jeff Bezos exactly it is. What will you do on Mars? I mean, that's a classic David Bowie question, right? Is there life on Mars? No, maybe, not a very nice one. But it's the escapism, the escape of the material limits, but only for the few. Before, freedom was for everybody, right? But either you go to Mars and then you find out, oh man, I can't live up there. It's terrible. Why? Because it's an average. But lots of money is put into it, right? A lot of money have put into it, of course. And a lot of technology. We need to remember for these people, Deus Ex Machina, right? God is technology. And we, the texters, we are the chosen few, no? I mean. It's not a coincidence that the wildfires of California never reach Silicon Valley and so on, blah, blah. So we go to Mars, phew! But obviously you find out very quickly that you can't, you can't live on Mars. It's impossible. So what do you do then? Well, and this is very interesting, right? What are we supposed to We get some uh, minerals? I mean, what are we supposed to bring back? They, they, can't breathe, they can't breathe the atmosphere up there as well. It's a... Uh, it's a strange idea, but when you then find out that that's not possible, then you shift from Plan B to Plan B, right? And that's why we know now for a fact and that the ultra-rich elites of Silicon Valley are beginning to buy escape property in places like New Zealand. They go there because they are afraid of what they call the event, uh, let's say climate catastrophe, so they, out of they, control, they, virus, and so on. They hedge
1: their bets. One bet is Mars and the other one
2: is New Zealand. Exactly. No. <laughs> neither they know where they live right so they, they don't live in the anthropocene like right? they live in the misanthropocene like right? crushed under the weight of this earth which is moving and which is obviously cannot take us all or carry the weight of us all they're gone and it's how,
1: terrible how many people i mean have you look at them? i mean yeah,
2: if you ask but the interesting thing about this situation is that it's not even secret it sounds like a balzac novel right like the, the rich is escaping the the planet alone, and during the night, and so on. But they say it themselves. And if you ask somebody like Steve Hoffman, he was interviewed about it. Who, who's the, who the co-founder co of Reddit? Like co-founder of Reddit, ah. like a billionaire dude from Silicon Valley. He estimates that around 50% of the Silicon Valley tech billionaires have escaped property in places like New Zealand, where they built like. Luxury, uh, climate secured bunkers and so on. It's very, it's very problematic, right? Because there's another things that you need to find out when you go there. How do you make the, how do you, how do you secure that the, the guards that you have don't turn the weapons against you? How do you, do you take the pilot with you and your, your, your avocado toast? It might not be organic, but hy- hydrophonic, right? <laughs> it's, it's impossible. But it's this
1: escape of, of material limits. So they do recognize there is a danger. So it's, they are not sceptic. They are deniers. I mean, they they don't. They are not deniers. They know, they know very know. well. They know very well. They, they know very know,
2: well. Okay. They know. They well. Climate denial is not despite the fact that climate change is going on. It's because of the fact that mm-hmm. because the price is too too expensive to pay, right? And these are just the people that are really taking the taking the consequence of it.
1: But how do they? cope with the fact of being alone and not bringing in in, in the old logic of modernism the whole planet? I mean, they, they, how can they say, sorry, you guys forgot it? I mean, how, how do they cope morally with it? It must be, there's they, they a, a sort of a... That's exactly what invent we... Invent themselves as exactly a, as what a we need
2: to study. Like, I mean, I, my belief is that if we were able to compare the territorial strategies, the territorial interests, the territorial organizations and moral economies, if you want, by people like that, and if you compare them to people who are already losing their territory and who has no possibility of escaping, let's say, in the slums of Bangladesh or other places in Southeast Asia, which is not only super um, poor, but also hardly hit by climate change, then you would have a lot better of a description of what the class struggle would mean tomorrow not based on the the production system, but on territory, on soil and soily conditions. But to answer your question, how do they cope? I mean, they don't, they can't. But it's easier than staying with the trouble, as Donna Haraway would say.
1: Well, when Musk sent his machine in the the Tesla, uh, he said it was uh, silly but fun. Exactly. And that's a very good definition of when modernity breaks down.
2: No? It's silly.
1: Well, in my, in my idea of space conquest, because as an old man, I, I was in this period of a, the idea of a space conquest, I, I was very shocked by this sentence. It was <laughs> fun. Uh, silly, but fun. Because for us, it was not silly. It was, it was the adventure of a, of a progressive modernity. And to see it as a caricature, only for a few people, I was very depressed. Mm. On the other hand, a minute after he said that, I don't know if you have seen that, but there was—he invented his engineers invented a system to recuperate the, the boosters. Yeah. And after 15 minutes, they arrived and landed perfectly. I was—I felt okay. Well, I'm half of me is a modernist. Mm. In complete admiration for engineering quality. Hmm. So I think we are exactly in this moment when, when simultaneously we, we literally live on different planets, and one of them, one of them is still the modernist planet, and another one is this guy you study, which are escaping somewhere, in a, in in a uh, accelerationism is another version of it, and I. What, what is interesting is that we now are completely divided on where we and then there are the people who want to get back to the English England of uh, global Britain, and never want to get to the back to where uh, America was many years ago. And, uh, so we, we are completely divided, and, and I think this is why, uh, in a way, the, the situation is so uh, interesting because we are politically divided on what land is. The, this was actually the argument of a, of a book, in, in, in some ways. Mm. Yeah, but it's, again, it's, it's,
2: we don't have to stay there so long But at that topic, but it, yeah, it's, it was surprising, right? But right? It, it was surprising when he took off and he said it's for fun with his Tesla Roadster and so on. But it's only half part of the story. I mean, he is very serious about putting billions and billions and billions of dollars into his SpaceX program but also, it can't be that surprising, because only a few months earlier, Donald Trump had first taken America out of, uh, out of the Paris Agreement, denied the climate, and what did he do afterwards? Make America great again in space. Let's go to Mars as well. So it's not only a sociological point, I mean, it's also a geopolitical
1: point. But when our president, French president, hmm? used the expression, make the planet great again. Yeah which I have transformed once more as made the planet Greta. Greta, again. It's a bad joke, I agree, but...
2: <laughs> but tell me about Greta. What is different with her ways of articulating these questions? It's about survival now.
1: She made it a tragedy, and I think that's what is important. But I want to go back to that, the argument uh, which, in the book, I argue But it's just a word, um, that if we want to reconcile the old uh, because that's the key thing right now politically if we want to reconcile the socialist tradition which as Charbonnier the man I was mentioning before showed was always interested in the question of a divide between the two land the industry out of which people live and the legal uh, ways in which uh, people <coughs> lived. So the, basically, the socialism is about this disconnect. Yet it's also true that in terms of a socialist in implication into ecological movement, it, it was it never worked, so to speak. And uh, in fact, the hero of this uh, book by Charbonnier is the same as my hero, which is Karl Polanyi with one of the very few who have articulated in a socialist tradition that the question of the, un, the, the land resisting to production and labour resisting to production shows, I mean, Karl Polanyi in The Great Transformation point out that it, it's not an ecological, I mean, of course, he didn't talk about ecology at the time, but pointing out that the question is not about production, but something else, which is about... Uh, what I call, it's not a word that you use, but I use it nonetheless, engendering, a question of generation, a question of the ways in which things are actually uh, brought to the world. So I'm very interested in in trying to push this connection. How would we re-understand inside the socialist tradition, the possibility of re-articulating with what was called before ecology, but it's not about green stuff only, it's about existence, it's about survival, <coughs> it's about uh, generation, it's about giving birth. You end
2: your last book with a sort of a homage to, to, uh, to Europe, right? I mean, do we have a special responsibility in Europe? The West has broken in two, we're no longer under the moral umbrella of America.
1: Yeah, I'm a European patriot. I think Europe has exactly the right size. It has also committed the right crimes. Mm. It has also... Uh, Europe is made of all the places where everybody else had a battle with everybody else. So it's a beautiful uh, map of all the people uh, uh, and all the battle and the whole history of uh, nation-state fighting on another. Uh, it has a responsibility on climate, of course, it invented it. But it uh, it's also the only place where the post-nation was pushed far enough to really experiment with what is possible and not possible. It has the right ecological spread, so to speak, from the north to the south of, uh, of Spain and Italy. Uh, it has... I think we all feel now, especially after the last election, actually uh, something which has nothing—not simply EU, Cause when people in France—I don't know about here—but when people talk about Europe, they say EU or Brussels. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. I mean, yes, of course, it's very important, but it's also Europe as as a as a land, as as a as a as a as a place, uh, which which now also has a great advantage of having to solve the question of migration, which I think is a great advantage. We should have thought of that before when we went away. <laughs> but now that we have to bring the two land together, people come to us. And I think that's a great chance, even if it's extremely stressing and extremely difficult to find the right solution. But people don't, they come to Europe, they don't go to China, Russia. So. If you will list all of these things, Europe is uh, probably now today the most interesting experiment in, in political ecology, yes, I think. and as a legal lens. People were very surprised I mentioned that in the book. People say you are not allowed to speak of Europe in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you talk about Europe, it has to be boring, <laughs> and not about existential connection to a land, the way we like to be Danes or French. I mean, but when I criticize the government in France, I criticize the state, but I'm, I, I feel deeply patriotic, so to speak. Why is it not the same for Europe? You criticize the EU, but you, you are European. I mean, it's two different levels of existential attachment.
2: And Europe was built on coal and steel. Sorry? The European Union was built on coal and steel.
1: Yes, 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 yes. It was actually built on that first, which is quite interesting. Mm. I mean, it's all—it's all about ecological uh, question in, so, in some sort of sense, but the most important one is of course migration, and how it will, it will handle it. So uh, so far, we have not found the solution. But what I'm arguing in, in the book is that the. the There is a new universality, which is not the old universality that Europe tried to impose violently to the rest of the world, which is due to the fact that we don't know which land we are in. So in that very interesting sense, there is some sort of filiation or, how should I say that, um, sympathy between the migrants who have actually lost their land who come to Europe where the Europeans also, in a way, have lost the land because they don't know where they, what they pertain to, which is, of course, why they reject, some of them reject the migration, which, of course, will change when people be, understand which land they are in. Again, this is one of the effects of not being able to describe a territory. So I think on the, on the, the, the general task, I would say is to describe the territorial uh, attachment we have and not the values and the identity. I mean, this is, this is clearly what happened in the Brexit and it went nowhere. Um, so I think in the, in the end, uh, there is some, uh, we, we live in an interesting mo- political moment. It's a good moment to do a PhD on territories and geosocial classes. <laughs> Well time is up audience is not there and we stop yep except if there is one authority then